You may be seated. So we have finished the letter of James, and before we get into a short series I want to unpack a bit during the Advent season, I've got a couple of one-off messages I want to preach. So if you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. I'm going to read the chapter and then uh, just think about a few things here. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your spirit working with the word, our Father, now in great power for your glory and our good. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you guys some questions, and feel free to raise your hand if you want. How many of you all believe that people today are hungry for community? That, by which I mean hungry for deeper, fuller, richer relationships. How many of you feel that people today need that, whether they're hungry for it or not? And how many do you believe that the church, that is the body of Christ, is the answer to that need and that hunger? So 15 years ago, I would, agreed, I would have agreed with you. 15 years ago, I would have, as a young, zealous pastor, said yes, yes, and yes to all three of those questions, without hesitation, with passion. And I've spent... Some years watching people very closely. And they've given me some pause in answering those questions. Because first of all, I've realized the human need for social connection does vary quite widely. 
there are people, I'm close to some, who just seem to flourish alone. They actually seem to do somewhat better by themselves. Hunger, too, I've discovered, watching people closely, it varies wildly, the hunger level for community. There is a well-documented epidemic of loneliness in our current social moment. You can do lots of reading on that. The statistics actually are kind of frightening about that, and I think most of us would agree that the tools for so-called connecting that we've created in our modern world have generally made that epidemic of loneliness quite a bit worse. But the, you know, statistics aside, the actual experience of loneliness, I've discovered it varies a lot. It varies by where you live. It varies by what season of life you're in. It varies a lot by, how, by what your upbringing was. Your physical and mental health affects your hunger for community. And whether you just sort of serendipitously hit it off with people or not. And recently, especially, I have noticed that when it comes to hunger for community, we have what I've come to call the right people problem. People hunger for community with the right people. And uh, regarding the church, you know, I used to think, you know, Paul McCartney saying, look at all the lonely people. I used to think all those lonely people were going to come to church and they're going to be like, we found each other. We're home. Yay. Of course, you spend any time in any actual church that exists under the sun, there are no exceptions, eventually you're going to hear rumblings about superficiality. There's going to be a feeling, you'll hear it eventually, that all of us maybe, or at least some of us, need more. That things are kind of superficial. We, maybe we're even a friendly church, but man, we're not a really connected church. We're not really sharing life. We're not really bonding. And it's interesting, you know, churches, I, I get what this feels like as a pastor. You don't love to hear that if you hear that. And so, you know, churches often try to fix the, the perceived superficiality with what I call artificiality. And so we artificially, to help us with our superficial relationships, we create a bunch of artificial programs and events and groups. And the people who are dissatisfied with the level of community don't get why other people are just so satisfied with what seems very superficial or artificial to them. And meanwhile, again, of late, I've noticed this right people problem is just ripping through the churches. Even if you call Jesus Lord, we don't really want to be close to you if you're not the right kind of people. You know what I love about Christianity? You know what refreshes me about the Jesus way? As we encounter these kinds of differences and variances and all the resulting conflict that can so easily happen, you know what's refreshing about Christianity? It doesn't matter what you and I want. It doesn't matter what you and I need or feel we need. What matters is what our Lord requires. That's what matters. That's refreshing. It just cuts through the stuff. What is the goodwill that Jesus has for his disciples in what we call the communion of saints? That's the issue, beloved. It doesn't matter what you and I feel we need or feel we want. What does Jesus want for the communion of saints? And I chose this text to talk about today because I just want to start with a very, very, very basic command in verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Let love be for real. And at the beginning of verse 10, love one another like family. Love one another like bro with brotherly affection. So that's the basic thing that is kind of going on in this text. Jesus says, this is my commandment. Love one another for real. Love one another like family. 
Now, no sooner do we hear Jesus say that to us than it prompts us to consider what I'm going to call a tale of two idols, because no sooner do we hear that command, love one another for real, it doesn't matter what you think you want or need, love one another for real and like family, we immediately discover that there are two rivals for our allegiance to Jesus when it comes to hearing that command. Two rivals, I'll call them idols, and those two rivals, when we hear that command, are number one, what I want for myself, and the other rival, the other idol, is what I want from others. You with me? Jesus says, love one another, and immediately there's two things pulling me away from that. One is what I want for myself, and the other is what I want from other people. Let's talk about those two things very, very briefly. What I want for myself, because some of us, beloved, in the face of Jesus' command to love one another, the reality is some of us just idolize ourselves and our own personal comfort. We really do. I do. And you know, it's not hard to understand why we do. Because for all the romanticizing about community and friendship and sharing life and life together, here, you know, the reality is, you guys know this, love, <laughs> actual love is costly. It's costly even when it's good. And what you often find is that when people talk about community, what they often mean if you really listen closely is they just want you to give so they can take. I've had a lot of people, and they, they're always going on about community, and when you really pay attention to what they're saying, what they're really saying is, I just want a lot of people to give so I can take. And that's like the bad, that's the bad side of the spectrum, but even when things are really good, being, drawing close to and serving and loving people who are really wonderful, it, it, there's still cost, and it's uncomfortable. And the reality is, and there's no way to sugarcoat this, if your life is driven by what makes you comfortable, then you're going to have to, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to have to turn down the dial on Jesus' command to love and just mute it eventually. And I know Christians who do this. They, Jesus says, love one another, and I'm going to get specific about that, and they just tune it down. They just, they tune it out. That's one possibility. Or if you don't you know, mute Jesus, you're going to find he's going to make you uncomfortable. He is going to unsettle you if you are going to hear him say, love one another and take that seriously, communion is just not comfortable. There's nothing, it's not comfortable. It's, it's, it's joyful, it's, it's sweet, but it's not comfortable. If you are going to love people, it's going to impose stuff you do not want on your life. It just is. And it's going to restrict things that you want to do. There's no way around that. That's just the nature of love. Sharing life is a hassle. We have to get real about that. And so what I want for myself can pull me away from what Jesus says. It's re this, this idolizing of our own comforts, it's very much reinforced by the architecture of modern life. It's interesting that Paul begins by saying, don't be squeezed into the world's mold. Don't be conformed to the world. And our world today really does reinforce comfortableness and, and serving, kind of self-serving. Because if you think about the architecture of modern life, I don't mean the buildings, I mean the way we kind of construct our lives at the level of lifestyle, you realize we have just created so many ways to reject impositions. It's just about a modern dogma. You shouldn't have to deal with anything you didn't choose. You shouldn't have to bear up under anything that you did not want, right? Delete it if it's bothering you. Our modern architecture of our lifestyles reinforces self-insulation. Go away, I don't wanna deal with you anymore. And we don't just reject impositions, we reject restrictions. We don't like being squeezed. I, you know, Tim Keller has very, very observantly said, the modern world actually has no way to reconcile love and freedom. 
There's a lot of talk about love and a lot of talk about freedom, but you actually can't put those two things together the way the modern world defines freedom because if freedom means you don't have any restrictions, you cannot love because love by definition is restrictive. To love someone by definition means you're cutting off some options. But what we don't realize, of course, often is that it is our selfishness that's the prison. Is there anything more enslaving and confining than being trapped in yourself? And only Christ actually frees us from that prison of selfishness to give and receive. I I love this couple of lines from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, where he says, without Christ, we should not know God. We could not call upon him nor come to him. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. Christ opened up the way to God and to our brother. So there's this idol of what I want for myself, but beloved, there is an idol in another direction. Jesus says, love one another for real, like family. The other idol, the other thing that pulls on our allegiance is what I want from other people. Because some of us don't so much idolize self and its comfort. Some of us idolize a social ideal and its imagined comforts. And I'm just going to read some searing lines from Bonhoeffer's life together. This is some heavy stuff about how we idolize a social ideal. Listen to what he says. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He acts as if he's the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of God, sorry, first an accuser of his brethren, then of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself, unquote. I've watched this happen so many times, I've done this myself, where a vision of Christian community begins to actually destroy and erode actual Christian community because you've got your head so full of your ideal, you can't love the actual people that God has put in your actual community. So I want to ask, having looked at the idols for a moment, is what does the Lord require of us? And he requires these things of us in his love. I want to turn a corner now, and I want to talk about Christ in this text, Christ against our selfish interests, and Christ against our social ideals. Now, why would I use such a hard word as Christ against? Are you saying, Pastor, that Christ is against us? He's against our selfish interests. He's against our social ideals. Yes, I am. You know why I'm saying that? Because that's what discipleship is. What it means to have a master and to be his apprentices is that the master, the whole discipleship process is inherently unsettling. Do you realize that if Jesus says, follow me, you actually can't follow and stay where you are? Like, just let that sink in for a minute. By definition, the word follow means you don't get to stay where you are. You must go elsewhere. Not that anymore, but this as a friend of mine puts it. That's basic discipleship. You cannot become more like Jesus by staying more like you. Are you with me? 
Like, that's just the unsettling, unsettling of discipleship. You don't get to stay where you are. You go to become like Jesus. Well, what's the strand in this text? There's a strand here, you'll notice, that unsettles. It challenges our tendency, and some of us have this more than others, to seek first our own interests and to get very comfortable seeking first our own interests. Listen to some of the phrases from this text, and here's the strand that is against our selfish interests. Having gifts, what? Use them. That's unsettling. Seek to show hospitality. That's unsettling. Oh, I sit and think about hospitality, Pastor. No. Seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with people. It actually means be of one mind with them. Now, just do you notice how active that language is? Bring forth your gifts. Reach for people through hospitality. Bond with people. Become of one mind with them. All of this language, Jesus is just like, he's got crowbars under our floorboards and he's just prying us out of ourselves. Bring forth, reach forth, bond with. And I just want to think for a moment about this other-seeking love that Jesus commands against our selfish interests. First of all, I wonder if we realize that this is so very good. So very good. Jesus is against our selfishness for our sake. He who waters, beloved, will be watered. Think about how this waters your life when you are seeking others in this way. It waters your soul. I was talking with a young man recently. We're just reflecting together on what a gift it is to get to know someone and to be known by them. Do you realize what an extraordinary privilege we human beings, unlike you know, all the other creatures in the world who grunt and whistle, and I guess that's the extent of their communication, we alone on earth are the creatures that God has made to enter into each other's internal worlds. When I talk with you, I am actually exploring an entire cosmos that is your inner life. And I get to invite you into mine, and we get to actually like, gaze into the, the fathomless, interesting labyrinth of each other's life life within and we have the opportunity in that inner sanctum of each other's minds and hearts and emotions and hopes and dreams and fears and joys and sorrows we have a chance to 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 you know they say babies come out of their mother's womb looking for a human face there's something about us as humans that wants to be recognized wants to be affirmed wants someone to want us And that's what happens to souls that are getting to know one another and serve and love one another is you are actually having the experience of together recognizing each other. You matter. Your interests matter to me, not just to you, but to me, and and begin to affirm and, and want one another. It waters your soul. It waters your labors. It's good because it waters your labors. There are so many things in this world that are that are so much better weathered together. Woe to him who's alone when he falls. There are so many things that can only be accomplished if there's a threefold cord. There are some things you need a single-strand rope. There are some things you need a threefold cord if it's going to get done. Our labors are watered by this other-seeking love and our memories. You know, you're all going to at some point reach that thing we all talk about looking back on your life. What do you remember on your, you know, at the end of your life when you're, you know, kind of running your inventory? I guarantee you you will not remember. You know, I, I, that was an interesting day. I spent seven more hours at the office. You know, I'm so glad I spent all that extra time watching Netflix. You know what you're going to remember? 
you're going to remember stuff that's creational and relational. Stuff God showed you in his creation that just gobsmacked you with his glory and people and relationships and connections, that's the stuff you remember. It waters your memories. Christ is against our selfishness because it's good. The other thing you'll notice though, this strand, this other seeking strand, it's not just good, it's also local. And here we have a little bit of a problem in 2021 because it's obvious as the New Testament writers, including Paul, talk about this kind of stuff, this very active other seeking love, they're assuming locality. They're assuming a common life and a common place. None of these readers of this letter ever drove to work. They never drove to church. They never drove anywhere. Everything they did was within walking distance, and they shared life with people within that walking distance because that's just how life was at the time. They, these writers, you know, they envision this that they're describing happening in a place where people are, have locality. They're close locally. And we have to be very honest about the fact that cars, and I'm not anti-car, please don't tell anybody Ben is anti-car, I, I drive a car, but cars created the commuter church. Cars created the commuter everything. Cars created preaching posts. Cars created the problem the modern church has where we do not have churches who share life together. We have preaching posts where people come together to hear a sermon together and go back to their individual lives. That is a creation of the automobile. And we have to be honest about what it looks like to practice this text in a time when all of the forms, almost without exception, all the forms of community in which daily lives used to intersect and overlap naturally, all that's collapsed. And, you know, the other modern challenge is that we now live lives that are vocationally and recreationally saturated. By the time you're done working and, and, and enjoying your various forms of entertainment, you don't have much left. And that collapse of communal forms where our lives naturally intersect and overlap and the excesses of our vocations and recreations, what it has led to, beloved, is sins of, om of omission. You know what I'm talking about. There are sins of commission. We have done things we ought not to have done. There are sins of omission. We have left undone things we ought to have done. Since we are not now naturally in each other's lives, the question we have to ask ourselves then is, when the Bible says exhort one another daily, do we exhort one another daily? Do we rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who are weeping? You know, do we contribute to the needs of saints? Do we seek to welcome each other through hospitality? It can be done. You guys have really worked hard on this the last 10 years. It can be done. If it's not happening, if this kind of love is not happening because we're in the 21st century, what we lack is imagination and obedience. It can be done. I've been thinking a lot about how it can be done. What if once a week, for example, the Sabbath is a good day to do it if you can, what if once a week you had a dinner party? Maybe that's too much. What if once a month? Do you realize dinner parties, and I'm not talking about huge, you know, 85 people. I'm talking even just, you know, maybe one other family, maybe a couple of families, a dinner party. Do you realize how socially that challenges so many things that are disintegrating in our time? I read a, a, something recently uh, uh, where the writer said this, the simple act of gathering friends to enjoy a meal and conversation is the perfect way to begin the work of restoration and rebuilding. When we recognize that the world is broken, you guys think the world is broken? When we recognize the world is broken, we can paint the righteous city. We can inv invite our annoying neighbor to dinner. I love this sentence. We can imagine how things might fit together and we can begin to put just two of those things back in place. That's what a dinner party is. When things are falling apart, 
It's realizing there's a way to put things back together. Jesus is doing that, and I'm going to put two things back together at the same table, myself and some other person. And make sure your kids are a part of that. Don't just let your kids run off and watch TV. I mean, eventually they should probably run off and do something else, but have them at the table. Have them be a part of this. The other night we had a family over, and the, 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 the adults were just sharing life stories, and we had some of our teens at the table, and they were like listening and sharing some of their life stories, which is the most interesting exchange of just you know, experience together. And maybe once a month or maybe once a quarter, if that's too much, make sure that person at your table is a non-Christian, someone who doesn't know Jesus or even want to know Jesus. Or if, you know, dinner parties are not your thing. You know, my wife and I had an idea recently. What if we just had a small reading circle? What if, like, one or two other couples just once a month get together, read something that's, you know, spiritually edifying, get together, just talk about it for 45 minutes? That's, I mean, how hard is that? Or we live on Long Island. There are beaches and state parks galore. Just take a walk together to state park. Coffee is awesome. Get some coffee. You don't like coffee? You know, get your thing. Host a, host a movie night for the young, the young disciples and, and just talk about it afterwards with them. You know, coordinate errands. You got to run some errands? Maybe somebody could run some errands with you. Just coordinate together. I, some of our young men have started a, a breakfast together where they just get together and they talk about how to build the kingdom together. I absolutely love that. It's, it's local. It, there's, there are ways to do it. You say, it's too expensive, Pastor. It's too exhausting. Is it really? Well, then maybe the problem is, and this is the third thing I'll say about this active strand, it's not just good and local, it's also simple. It's so simple. How do I use my gifts? Having gifts, use them. How do you use your gifts? It can be as simple as showing up. Just show up. There's stuff that happens in the life of the church and in other Christian communities on Long Island. Just show up. God will use your gifts. if you, He won't use them if you don't show up. Show hospitality. Think popcorn. I'm serious. Make a bowl of popcorn. Stop entertaining like, pop, let popcorn be your metaphor. It can be that simple. Have people over, have a bowl of popcorn, mix, put some butter and salt on it, and you're good. Keep it simple, but be together. How do you learn to live in, be of one mind with people? Learn the art of conversation. You know, it's, it's just simple things. It's learning how to sit with a human being and ask questions until you feel like you've got some idea of who they are. It is simple. And the fourth thing I'll say about it is that it's missional. One of the most helpful things I've ever heard about Christian community is this. It is mission that creates community. You get a bunch of soldiers together on the front lines somewhere, and they're stuck together in a platoon. It doesn't make any difference if they're the kind of guys who would have been friends in any other circumstances. Oh, you know, Buster and I, I don't think he's kind of my type. Well, he's your type now because you're in a platoon together. <laughs> you're on mission, and you're going to have to learn how to work together. And as you are on mission together, you know what's going to start happening? You are going to start bonding, even with Buster. And the more you and I as Christians care about being missionaries. God has put us here now in this time and place to serve him, and the more we care about that mission for Jesus, we want to we see the kingdom of God grow. We want the salt out of the shaker, salting the world. The more you're going to find this kind of love that Paul describes is going to start happening naturally. So Christ against our selfish interests, but he's also against our social ideals because there's another strand here that unsettles not so much our selfish interests, but our idolizing of community. You get it in other phrases, like rejoice in hope. Repay no one evil for evil. As much as lies within you, live peaceably with all. This is unsettling the way we idolize community. Because the biblical communion of saints it requires not just investment to push us out of our selfishness. It also requires a lot of patience and a lot of grace and forbearance 
with, I'll just mention three things very quickly, with differences. People are so different. Now what's interesting to notice is when the Bible says love one another, that is what we call a positive command. If God gives us a negative command like don't steal, and I'm walking through the pews and I notice your wife's purse sitting on the pew, and I'm having a little discussion within myself about, you know, it feels complicated. I wonder how I should obey the command, do not steal. It's not complicated, just don't do it. Like negative commands couldn't be easier. There's a line, don't step over it, there you go, you're, you're good. But positive commands are not like that. If God says, Ben, love your wife the way Christ loves the church, I've been working on that for 19 and a half years, and I still have a long way to go. Because positive commands are things that we grow in. Go do this be that, and you realize it, there's a process there. There's no process about not stealing. There's a process about positive commands, and what that means is, as God says, love each other for real, like family, there are gonna be very different levels of skill. There are gonna be different levels of maturity. We have to be super patient with that. And there's variety in how this works out. You know, the Bible gives general commands, love one another, show hospitality, contribute, re weep, rejoice, but it doesn't give specifics. It leaves a lot of liberty to how specifically different people work out these commands. There's a lot of variety, and that doesn't mean that we don't end up obeying the command at all. If you're like, well, you know, my way of showing hospitality is once every 20 years. That's not difference, that's disobedience. But we're different in the way that we, op we obey Christ's commands. Related to that, there'll be, we have to be patient and gracious, not just with real differences in application, but with limits. There are limits. The practical reality is, you know, we have only so much time. We have only so many resources. Jesus says love, okay, but love whom and when and how. I remember someone yelling at me in the early days of Trinity because I was not spending more time out hanging out with people, you know, the way this person felt that I should. I had four young children and I was, you know, just planting a church. I remember at one point telling this person, do you realize there's this thing called human finitude? We all have limits. We don't, none of us has an unlimited ability to love. You know, that poor young mom staring at the sink full of dishes after she's finally got her last toddler to stay in bed, you bring up dinner parties, she's gonna kinda hate you. This poor girl is exhausted. She has limits. Saints who live alone, they may not be able to throw a dinner party, or they live with a non-Christian spouse, or people who are in economic crisis, or people who are sick, or people who are elderly, and you know, they're just, you know, their, their gifts are gonna come, come forth in different ways. There's gonna be limits to how much they can, you know, be pursuing other people. The, the limits are real, we have to be patient. And, and the last thing we have to be patient and gracious, gracious with, and, and, and you know, the, the text clearly puts its crosshairs on our idolizing a social ideal, not just patient with differences and limits, but with selfishness. And beloved, I just have to say this, if you are a Christian who in Christian community cannot be patient and gracious with selfish people, you're gonna have a hard time building community. In marriage counseling, I learned something. There are two ways people control relationships. One way they control relationships is very assertively. They try to force things. The other way people control relationships is passively. They just withhold things. They just don't do things. They just don't give, don't contribute. And the reality is, there are Christians who try to control communities by asserting this is how it should be. There are Christians who control the life of community by just withholding. There are professing Christians who do not want to love. And they just don't want to love. 
or they only want to love certain people. They're not interested in being stretched beyond that. That's just their hearts. And you and I must be patient with non-investors. We must be patient with the cliques who only want to love the three people they all always love. You gotta be patient. You gotta be gracious. And you'll find those people, if you get frustrated with their non-investment and frustrated with their cliquishness, they will often turn on you and blame you for being unrelational. It's a very weird thing. You have to be patient with that and gracious with that. There are going to be times when your invitations and your investments, they are going to be met with non-reciprocation. And when that happens, not if that happens, it's a good opportunity to ask yourself a very basic question. Are you investing and inviting for you? Or are you investing and inviting for Jesus? Is this about your vision of a social ideal that you worship more than Christ, or is it about serving Christ? Because you will be disappointed. People are selfish. Jesus loves you and me. We're going to have to love some selfish people. That's just the nature of Christian community. And what I love about this text, and I hope it's clear that I'm just exploring here. I don't have anybody in mind in saying these things. I'm not, Trinity's a great loving church. I'm just making sure we, you know, check ourselves sometimes to see how we're doing. This is the commandment of our Lord, love one another for real like family. What is so interesting is that the communion of saints is in a confession of our faith. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. I believe in it because it is not by our works, but it is by Christ's work that we are, Paul says it here, we are one body in Christ. That is a, we believe that by faith because it's Christ's work that has made that so, not our works. We are one body in Christ, verse 5, and individually we are members one of another. It can feel like we're just individuals, but individually we are members one of another. In one of Wendell Berry's novels, one of his characters says this, the difference ain't in who's a member and who's not, but in who knows it and who don't. The difference ain't in who's a member and who's not, but in who knows it and who don't. And in one of his essays, Barry says this, there is no such thing as autonomy, being your own individual person. There is only a distinction between responsible and irresponsible dependence. Nobody is an island. Nobody's an individual in the body of Christ. There is only a question, is our dependence on one another a responsible dependence or are we being irresponsible about that dependence by either demanding or withholding. And ultimately, the whole point of this is not even for our benefit. It's for God's glory. Jesus said it at the Last Supper. He said, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I chose you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. These things I command you so that you will love one another. That is the fruit that glorifies God. And Jesus has chosen us and ordained us that we should go and bear that fruit out of his own love for us. So, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Amen. Make it so, our Father, by your own Holy Spirit. In Jesus we pray. Amen.